So, Caitlin, who are we canceling today? <sighs> I guess it's the New York Times again. Again? I mean, listen. They won't stop. <laughs> they can't keep getting away with this. Hey, everyone. I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the panic around cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. So, Oliver, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, What's the elephant in the room, Caitlin? We do a lot of episodes about the fucking New York Times. There have been many. But I know we just covered it with Michael Hobbs in a fairly recent episode, but we just so happen to have a really good uh, transmedia expert on as our guest this week. We were not initially planning on talking about the Times, um, with this episode, we had some other topics in mind, but the whole discourse around the Times contributor letter and the GLAD letter to the Times editorial board sort of exploded um, almost out of nowhere. Of course, not nowhere if you are a listener to this show, but we felt it was important to talk about that because I think there's a lot of concepts with free speech implications and um, media criticism that go along with this wider discussion. And it's inescapable. (laughs) I just want to let listeners know that we recorded this last week. There have been um, a few more developments since then, but uh, Tuck's analysis and Caitlin's thoughts are really smart still. So uh, let's get to it. Joining us now is the wonderful host of the gender reveal podcast tuck woodstock tuck thanks for joining us yeah thanks so much for having me it's an honor has this week been an honor uh (laughs) (laughs) i mean this is a huge week for me because i'm constantly thinking and talking about i mean the same thing that y'all talk about which is wow the new york times really hates trans people but rarely Mm -hmm. does it become the primary discussion point on my entire corner of Twitter. Like this week, it's a special holiday where everyone is talking about how the New York Times is bad at trans coverage. And that doesn't just include trans people, like cis people are talking about it for once. Yeah. Uh, So I'm actually really enjoying everyone else yelling about the thing that I'm already constantly yelling about, you know? Yeah. And actually, let's bring uh, people who aren't terminally online up to speed on what we're talking about. There were actually two different separate open letters to the editors of the New York Times. Uh, The one that I sort of have most followed is a letter from essentially New York Times contributors uh, to the standards editor, Philip B. Corbett, about the Times' coverage of trans issues, which I don't want to rehash all of that because... Our listeners are very familiar with that coverage. Uh, two episodes ago, we had Michael Hobbs on, and we had a fantastic breakdown of all of that. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily have to get into like the specifics of how they've fucked up, because a uh, surprise, surprise, we, we covered yeah. it already. Um, but uh, basically, they were concerned that the paper wasn't applying their own standards of reporting and uh, even the opinion section in their 
coverage of trans issues. And it ended up being signed by, um, I think I saw like 900 contributors and several thousand uh, journalists at large. So Tuck, why don't you sort of tell us what that letter was all about? Yeah, so my understanding is that several journalists involved with the Freelance Workers Union, like Joe Livingstone and Heron Walker, another esteemed trans journalist, spent quite a while putting together a really thoughtful letter that you're talking about. And I think it's so smart. It has so much evidence in it of different ways that the New York Times is fucking up their coverage. Uh, But it's written in a way that really centers the fact that New York Times contributors are the ones signing and writing this letter. And they're saying, we, contributors to the New York Times, whether that's staff members, uh, photographers, freelancers, tech people, like anyone who's contributed to the New York Times, we are asking you to revisit the way that you're approaching trans coverage. And not to throw GLAD under the bus, but on the same day, um, GLAD, the advocacy organization, wrote a letter that is similar in content, but very different in tone. And instead of using a sort of journalistic approach to being like, here's the evidence, here is the request that we're making as journalists for you to change. uh, It was more of like, this is bad and wrong. We think you should stop it, which is also true and fair. But unfortunately, (laughs) uh, it's really easy to tone police that Mm -hmm. shit, right? And so because they came in at the same day, the New York Times spokesperson actually did not comment on the letter that was written and then signed by 900 New York Times contributors. Uh, In fact, instead... <laughs> he just commented on the Glad article and was like, this was written by activists. And of course, we're not going to align uh, with the beliefs mm-hmm. of activists. And so if activists are mad at us, it actually is just showing that we're doing our job well because we're not like on the side of activists. Uh, and they just didn't comment on the one signed by hundreds of their own reporters. And when someone asked like, does this, does this response apply to both of them? He was just like, oh yeah, yeah, no, both of them. And so they're literally not even dignifying it with a reply. And their implied reply is that all 900 New York Times contributors and 15,000 readers who signed the letter are also all activists, which is a really wild thing to say about your own contributors and staff members, I got to say. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that those people are very happy about that. No. Um, And something that I thought was so interesting also is this comment by this New York Times spokesperson led me and several other people to Google, hey, who is this New York Times spokesperson? And it turned out that his entire career before New York Times spokesperson is in the military. And he actually just left a job at the NSA one year ago. And it's like, wow, it's Mm -hmm. so wild that this like career military slash surveillance guy doesn't like trans people. I wonder where he got those ideas. There's simply no way to know. (laughs) Um. And then today, oh yeah, the piece de resistance is Pamela Paul's column, which I should note ran like two days earlier than her usual published day. I don't know if that says anything, uh, but it's literally the title is "In Defense of J.K. Rowling," which again we don't have to rehash all of that because no, we have another episode about that also. But it seems like a pretty clear sort of fuck you to basically everybody that protested on the day before. Right. Well, I didn't read it, but I did read from people who read it that it does compare 
trans activists and people who dislike J.K. Rowling to members of the Westboro Baptist Church. But yeah, that is so interesting what you're saying about them bumping up the publication sooner because I did see someone on Twitter talking about how they've had experiences in the past writing for the New York Times where the New York Times has been really sensitive to sort of the news climate. And so this contributor Mm -hmm. said that she had written an article, she didn't clarify about what, and the New York Times was like, oh, it would seem like heavy-handed and insensitive to release this article today, so let's release it in two days. And she was like, that's right, that's the correct call. And instead of doing that for this J.K. Rowling op-ed, they were like, let's speed this up, baby. Let's just get this one out as fast as humanly possible. Uh, so it is like a very, very clear fuck you. And it also was mm-hmm. actually predicted directly by Joe Livingstone, who was one of the writers of that letter, because Joe did a, an interview in Hell World yesterday. Uh, where they were just like, yeah, I think that the New York Times is going to keep doubling down. It like gets them a lot of clicks. And you know, if I were the New York Times trying to make money, I would say, look at how famous J.K. Rowling is. Let's talk about her too. And then like 12 hours later, this op-ed drops and it's like incredible, iconic. It's like a New York Times pitch bot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, I have a friend who literally thought it was the pitch bot at first. Like did not realize it was a real Pamela Paul column. (laughs) I thought it was. Yeah. I thought it was too. And it's like, it's really funny to like watch the people who are most loudly sort of sharing that piece around today. It's kind of weird that she's doing this whole like apology, not even apology, but like, it's like clearly a PR campaign to sort Mm of clear up these accusations of transphobia. So that tells me like the awareness campaign about her must be having some sort of measurable impact. Mm hmm. Um, and we were getting a little bit off topic, but I'm wondering if you had any sort of thoughts on that. Well, did you hear about her new podcast? Um, which trials of JK Rowling? Yeah. Did y'all talk about this? We haven't. No, cause I just heard about it yesterday. So we in the podcast world, like the sort of public radio sector of the podcast world has known about this for a long time. It is just the collaboration of the worst people you've ever heard of in your life. It's like Barry Weiss, Andy Mills, who is like a known predator, like the number one known predator in the radio community Mm -hmm. and JK Rowling doing a podcast together about how JK Rowling is correct actually. And we've known that this was coming for many, many months, but there's just nothing Mm -hmm. that you can do about it because the only thing to really do is complain. And if you complain, then you're playing right into their hands because then they can be like, we're getting canceled again. And it's a really shitty position to be put in where you're like, oh, something deeply harmful to trans people is coming down the pipeline and it's being created by known grifters and known billionaires and known billionaire grifters. Uh, But we like literally just can't say anything about it. So um, I'm just not clear. Yeah. Well, I saw that Natalie Wynn ContraPoints tweeted about it this morning where she was like, you know, I was asked in good faith to come onto this podcast because she had a very famous video about J.K. Rowling a couple of years ago before she sort of became more of a symbol of being problematic that, you know, heavily critiqued J.K. Rowling. And she came out this morning and said, I went on this podcast and I actually deeply regret doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that that was sort of interesting but it seems like the Paul piece today was basically just sort of asking people to... (laughs) listen to the that new podcast that you mentioned yeah i mean and pamela paul you know former editor of new york times book section which in retrospect you know explains a lot about what they've been up to but she loves (laughs) to write op-eds about how like 
white ladies broadly, sometimes not white, sometimes not ladies, are being persecuted as famous authors. So I was collecting just a few. And, you know, she's only been writing op-eds for like a year. And she already has in defense Mm -hmm. of J.K. Rowling. She has an article about that one gender book. I forget what, The Men or whatever. And it's like she wrote a dystopian novel. What happened next was pretty dystopian without having even been read. And then she also has... There's more than one way to ban a book. A serious strain of self-censorship has taken root within the left-leaning publishing industry in which she says basically like, okay, it's true that the right are literally banning books, but what's worse is that sometimes the left critiques a book and that's the real censorship. And then she just recently wrote something about American Dirt, which we all remember as a book written Mm -hmm. by this non-Latina, non-immigrant lady who got a ton of press and advance and money for writing this book about the immigrant experience. And then some people were like, hey, that is messed up. Miriam Gerba kind of led the charge on that one. And she was like, cancel culture, cancel culture, cancel culture. And then, of course, that book sold like a million copies, Mm -hmm. despite it being um, just poorly written. That's the thing about these books is like the books that like, quote unquote, get canceled. One, they don't get canceled. They sell well. But two, (laughs) they're written so badly that it's just like, Even if you take out all the other critiques, like you shouldn't be publishing this because like it needed to go through edits. Like what is happening? But anyway, Pamela loves to defend these women. It's the cancel culture grift economy. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. She also wrote an article about how you literally can't say women anymore. And like it's all of the same like usual like sort of fake accusations that the right gender criticals have come up with in the past. Yeah. She wrote can't say women. She also wrote you can't say gay, but not from the lens of the rights can't say gay bills. It's actually from the lens of people are trying to get gay people to say queer and gay people aren't allowed to say gay anymore. And so we should be allowed to say gay. And it's like, ma'am, you're not even a part of the LGBTQIA, you know, community. (laughs) Like you're not any of the letters. You're not in there at all. You're in a completely separate alphabet for people who have fucked Brett Stevens. And I just like don't understand... (laughs) why you think any of this is your business. Um, But she, yeah, she did say you cannot say women and you have to say gay. (laughs) These are two really important points. And then she also just put out one about free speech and how Stanford was considering uh, suggesting that people don't use certain words and then they walked it back and she's like, this is an incredible victory for free speech. And it's like, I don't know, lady, you're the one who was saying not to say queer. So I'm kind of (laughs) unsure what you want from me. Yeah, it's sort of like um AI chat bot mm-hmm. of like a gender critical friend group chat. <laughs> and then what's disorienting is I was scrolling through like some of her other op-ed titles and there are some that are like posturing as liberal, like gay marriage is good and like the right is wrong about this, that and the other thing. And I'm like, how does this person have an internal logic? Like, does she believe all of these things at the same time or does every week she just uses a chat bot to like generate what will get her the most hate clicks that week? <sighs> Well, and the other thing, too, and I think it was mentioned in the New York Times letter, which, by the way, you can read by going to nytletter.com. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think we'll also link to it maybe in our show notes. But the Times used to have a regular trans contributor to the opinion page, Jennifer Finney Boylan, who is sort of the quintessential white trans lady memorist, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. And, you know, she didn't write every week or every other week about you know trans people but when it was relevant she did and they actually just flat out said we're not interested in having you contribute anymore and now she's writing for the washington post so this is just another way in which 
trans people are marginalized at the times. And I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago for Extra. And I was like, look, if you have like all of these people having a debate, but they all agree with each other, you don't have a debate, you have a lecture. Right. Like this is not a, this is actually not a debate. It's just straight up like force feeding an agenda. And I think that that is what's happening, to be honest with you. I I mean, who who can say what's going on over there? But it's certainly not anything good. And it's certainly not like slowing down anytime soon. But despite that, I do feel like this is the first moment with this letter that I have had a little bit of hope. Like obviously in the short term, nothing is changing. They literally just tripled down by putting out that statement and then putting out that Pamela Paula op-ed. But I do feel like it was heartening to see how many thousands and thousands of people were sharing that letter. Like I logged onto Twitter and Instagram and both of my accounts were like just the letter over and over and over and over again. And that like genuinely felt very good. (laughs) It was really, (laughs) it was really nice to see that many people speak up about that and not just the same, you know, eight of us who are yelling about it constantly. So I don't know. I think there's some kind of hope there. Yeah. I had this experience of like, oh my God, the cis were listening to us all this time. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't just shouting into the void where like nobody cared. It was really just, you know, maybe they didn't know how to approach it, but I think this is g- sort of gave them an easy on-ramp to talk about these things. And there was a lot of accounts who like I follow who literally never mentioned trans people. Mm-hmm. Like um, not so much like politics reporters, because that is obviously a big chunk of my following being a former Hill reporter, but it was more like the the sort of liberal commentariat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they showed up for this. And of all the weeks recently where trans people, especially on Twitter, needed to feel some hope and recognition, this is one of them because, you know, there was a, a, a 16-year-old trans girl in Great Britain who was just stabbed to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been sort of a really difficult thing for everybody to to deal with. Um, so having some sort of ray of hope while we're in this sort of period of mourning, I think, helped. Right. And I think that's what's also so wild about this week being the time that the New York Times triples down on this is that like people are literally dying and they're publishing mm-hmm. this defense of a billionaire to say she's not transphobic, actually. And it's like, why are we even talking about her at all? Why are we not talking about the fact that trans people are literally getting killed? And we know why, but I just felt, it felt more obvious to be like, this is at the exact same time Mm -hmm. that we're talking about the 16-year-old getting murdered. You know, New York Times is trying to shift focus to like, actually, J.K. Rowling has it worse than her. Uh, And actually, she's never been transphobic in her life, actually. And... I think there was something in that article that was literally like, well, she did do transphobia in her book, but that doesn't count. And is that, that's not real. <laughs> it's just like, okay. Thanks, Pamela. It's actually so much worse than that. Because I, I was the reporter who actually read like the first Cormoran Strike right. book that had a trans yes. character. I did this in 2018 for them, where I wrote a piece that was like, the headline was something kind of goofy was like, is J.K. Rowling transphobic? A trans woman investigates. By the way, I really lobbied for is J.K. Rowling a transvestigation, but thankfully <laughs> I didn't because that has a very different meaning now, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <It does. laughs> which I really don't want to get into. Um, 
But I actually ended up buying a digital copy of the book and I just did a search for trans to see, you know, what was up. And there's literally one scene where the cis main characters realize this character is trans in a, like a very weird, like how a cis person would visualize clocking a trans woman is like her hands she stuffed in her pockets and uh, her neck was hidden. And two pages later, the main character is like, you will have fun in a men's prison. <gasps> yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to say the implications behind that, but I think most people could like kind of catch yeah. the drift. So the fact that she then went on to be like, all trans women criminals must be thrown in men's prison suddenly takes on a new meaning because she already understands the implication of that. I really didn't want to like turn this into, um, you know, a witch trial on JK Rowling. I know it's fine, but <laughs> forget the pun. I mean, but also I wanted to bring up a different New York times things. We were talking about the Pamela Paul op-ed mm-hmm. so much. And there was actually a very rare uh, pro trans op-ed by pro trans column. I mean, like uh, pro trans people should be allowed to just live and, you know, not get the shit kicked <laughs> out of them constantly. Um, and that was published on the 10th. And the original headline was, the relentless attack on trans people is an attack on all of us. And then they changed the headline later that day to there is no dignity in this kind of America. And so even in the one like sort of pro trans op-ed that they published, you were not allowed to actually say that an attack on trans people is an attack on all of us in the headline, uh, because that would be too provocative against the New York times. So I don't know. Yeah. And like anybody who's done even the remotest, SEO work that comes with modern publishing knows that that second headline is just designed not to be read. Right. Oh, absolutely. Like nobody will understand what it actually is referring to. So nobody will click on it. Like there's not, there's actually not enough info in the headline to entice people to click it. Right. Exactly. They purposefully made it sound boring and pedantic so that nobody would look at it. Exactly what you're saying. Um, I did look at it, and this is a complete side note, but I feel like people will appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I opened the comments, which you should never, ever, ever, ever do, and that was a mistake on my part. But I did see one of the most iconic comments I've ever seen in my life, which I'm now trying to open with one hand very quickly. Uh, that was about uh, a completely new way to have transphobia that I just really appreciated um, the innovation level because this person said... Um, that we should look at clownfish. And it says, I have a pair of clownfish and one just recently turned from male to female so they could become a mated pair. The fish grew much larger and started laying eggs. Nature has already found a way, folks. The fact that humans can't do this says it all. If it was a thing, it would be a thing. (laughs) So the argument is not that transsexuality is legitimate because of clownfish. The argument is transsexuality is not legitimate in humans because clownfish are so much better at it than we are. And I was like, you know what? I obviously don't agree, but I do respect this absolutely galaxy brain take that you have made. Um, what a journey <laughs> that I've gone on in this comment <laughs> section. Oh, yeah, Mr. Random Commenter in the New York Times. <laughs> if, if people weren't meant to transition, how come I grew boobs when I started? Yeah, I, know, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. So incredibly clearly wrong, um, but just like <laughs> really a joy in finding new ways to be transphobic. You know, I'm like, wow, an innovator. Yeah. That is not where I thought you were going with the clownfish. No, exactly. By the way, because exactly. that's not typically how it goes. Exactly. <laughs> Brand new. 
Um, But anyway, yeah, it was actually the, I will say, the New York Times comment section on specifically the pro-trans article, which was so tame. Like, it was really just like, maybe we shouldn't be directly abusive to trans people. And that was its entire thesis. Um, And it also compared the trans movement to like other civil rights movements that have happened and are like, you know, civil Mm -hmm. rights, we like them, they're good. Um, The comment section was like, I would say 96% negative and was just all like, actually, you're... Uh, like a left-wing lunatic who was completely out of their mind and you're completely wrong and no one has ever agreed with you on this. And I was like, wow, this is actually maybe the most hateful anti-trans comment section I've ever seen. So like the New York Times is really doing a good job, like uh, accruing and brainwashing the people who are reading it to just absolutely hate trans people in a way that I'm just like, wow, normally you can find some people that are like, hey, I just showed up to say trans people are cool actually and like no they just weeded those comments out i mean this is the audience that the new york times has cultivated for themselves Mm -hmm. if you run things from a certain perspective you're going to get readers that want to read more of that perspective so that Mm -hmm. shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody i think their response to the contributors letter how do you think they're able to get away with just not responding at all to that because there's just no power that will make them do it, right? Like who is going to make them respond? The only people that can make them respond are the boss of the New York Times, who is clearly endorsing this. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I wish that everyone with their forces combined had enough power to actually leverage a real response, but they just don't seem to. And it is kind of shocking because you look at some of the names on that list, mm-hmm. like, big famous contributors, like people who have a lot of prestige and a lot of money uh, signed that letter. And they, yeah, don't feel like that's important. What I would love to know is what's going on internally. And if there's like, to what degree there's an internal pressure to respond, because it's like you said, like there's 900 contributors that signed that. And some of those people are New York Times current employees. And I would just love to know like what the Slack conversations are about this, because I think if there is a way to get a response, it is actually some kind of like internal revolt. Uh, and I've also wondered, like, can the New York Times Union get involved with this? To what extent is that possible or feasible? Because I really feel like mm-hmm. that's the only way to kind of overthrow this this situation right now. I think the union, like I've been following their contract negotiations for a while. I know one of the big issues that they're um, trying to bargain for is for the ability for you know, trans writers who wrote for the Times to be able to change their byline mm-hmm. after they transition. Mm-hmm. And the Times is like very vehemently saying no to that. Mm-hmm. Um, which suggests to me that their larger editorial bent is being dictated from the same people who are saying no to this very reasonable request. But I was kind of wondering what your take on all of that is. Yeah, I mean, we know that there are folks pretty high up at the times that are setting the standards of transphobia. Uh, We know that people have gone to the standards desk many, many times and asked to change their overtly transphobic style guide and have been told no or have been asked, you know, to bypass parts of it and been told no. Uh, And like you said, Mm -hmm. they've also asked to update bylines, which is very standard and been told no. And what I think is so interesting is that at one point, a few years ago, all of the national papers of record were kind of equally bad at this. Mm -hmm. And in the last few years, so many other papers have just gotten like medium fine to good about it. So like I've contributed to the Washington Post when I asked the Washington Post to update my byline 
they originally were like, oh, I don't know. And then the second I was like, it's because I'm trans. They were like, oh, done. It's done already. We already did it. <laughs> uh, and that was great. That was amazing. And yeah. I mean, the Washington Post is owned by just a different evil billionaire, but somehow they were like, that's not going to stop us from giving very, very basic dignity to trans people sometimes. And so there is clearly something uniquely bad (laughs) happening at the New York Times where all of these other papers and news outlets are like, hey, what if we like updated our practices a little bit? And that is not providing enough pressure for the New York Times to want to like stay current and do what everyone else is doing. They're like, no, we're the New York Times. We actually say what's right and what's right is transphobia. And I think that if they were just neutral and ignorant about it, they would just follow what everyone else is doing because it is a weird look to have a completely different style guide and like internal Mm -hmm. code of conduct than everywhere else. Like there's clearly someone there or someone's there who are like, we are doing this on purpose and we will not change it. Um, But I don't know who those people are. And I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this before, but I just keep thinking about what's also discussed in the New York Times letter, which is the homophobia that the New York Times perpetrated in, perpetuated is the word I wanted, but also perpetrated in like the mm-hmm. 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, and how there was an internal style guide at the New York Times that said, do not use gay, <laughs> hilariously for Pamela Paul, do not use gay as a synonym for homosexual, um, because they didn't want to normalize mm-hmm. being gay. And so they actually like have this legacy of just like high powered people at the New York Times, like saying we are absolutely not going to normalize some kind of, you know, queer or trans identity. So they're just doing it again. And that's why it's so funny that they're claiming that they're not and they never would. It's like you literally have a history of doing this. You, the paper, have apologized for doing this in the past. Yeah. You're just doing it again. <laughs> yeah, that would have been um, former executive editor A.M. Rosenthal. Yes, exactly. Uh, who gave that directive. And then the quote on his tombstone is, he kept the paper straight. <gasps> I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Why do you care so yeah. much? He specifically requested that phrase be put on his tombstone. Uh, I don't know that you can like definitively prove that that was the meaning that he was going for, but it, like, like I worked with words for a living. Yeah. So that's so wild. It's like, did you see there was like a wedding, a gay wedding recently where the theme of the gay wedding was transphobia like it was like this is our adult human male yeah. wedding and it's like I, why are you obsessed yeah. with us no 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 it wasn't a wedding oh it wasn't it was a civil partnership because that couple believes that marriage is between one man and one woman <laughs> <laughs> what is i'm wrong not making that up them? they literally had it two tweets later i yeah. believe you anyway it's just these days like people are so obsessed with us why is jk rowling so obsessed with us why is uh whoever at the new york times so obsessed with us it's just like there are real yeah. problems like just get a hobby like i cannot stress enough to any and all transphobic people just get a hobby like i don't know mm-hmm. a couple episodes back michael hobbs and i were speculating on why this seems to be such an appealing topic mm-hmm. for the times and this conclusion that we got was sort of like, this is what these editors and writers are worried about in their like New York City group chats. And I'm wondering if if you thought that that might be right or if you had any other theories on this or what's going on. I mean, I truly I can't explain transphobia, but it does seem to me like people love to feel persecuted and if you look at transness, not at all, even a little bit squinting upside down in the water in the dark, there is a way for cis people to feel persecuted by trans people existing. Um, I mean, it's not a legitimate way, but it is an argument that they try to make all the time. 
And I think that it feels really good to them to feel persecuted because then they get to feel morally righteous. And I don't know, as, as groups of people who are actually being persecuted, like I can't recommend it. Like I wouldn't say that it's fun. Um, but there's probably something that's really delicious about feeling morally righteous and also having all the power. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's one of the worst things of being actually persecuted is that you can scream and scream about everything bad that's happening. And there's nothing that we can do about it other than like make little podcasts. I do it too. That's what we do. Um, <laughs> But like, what if you like had a billion dollars and then also got to feel persecuted? Like, I'm sure that would just be incredible. <laughs> so I, I, that must be why they're doing it, right? Is just like the sort of one-two punch of feeling morally right and also incredibly powerful, but like simply can't relate. So <laughs> I don't know. I can't speak too much to it. You just sitting around making our little podcasts. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, it just feels so funny, you know, when like all of this stuff is happening and I'm like, for me, you know, like, oh, time to go make another one of my podcasts or like right now. And I will <laughs> I will do this as a plug for my own work. I decided last week to put together, which you know about, an all trans anthology of Fast and Furious related content. And you know why I did that? Because everything's bad. And I thought it would be so funny. And I thought about doing like a real project that had like stakes. And I was like, no, not at all. What I want is just my little shit post book. <laughs> um, because I don't, I don't want stakes. Like I was thinking about doing like a real anthology with like a publisher. And then my friend was like, you know, if you do like a real book, they're going to send it to like the Guardian and the New York Times to review it. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so now I'm doing Fast and Furious fan anthology instead because no one will look at it and it rules. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't know where I started with this, but I just like, I feel like all we, oh, it was a podcast. It's like all we can do sometimes when we make our little podcasts, we make our little joke books. Uh, what else are you going to do? I don't know. You got to live. You got to laugh. You got to love. <laughs> Speaking of podcasts, one thing I'm frustrated about is how much airtime a show like ours, which is supposed to be talking about internet culture and cancel culture and things like that. And how much time we end up devoting to the New York Times. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, do we care too much about what the Times thinks about us as trans people? Okay, so I would say no. And I want the answer to be yes so badly because so often it would be yes. But I would say no <laughs> because it is affecting so so directly the way that trans people exist in the world. So we can look at, obviously, mm-hmm. the way that anti-trans coverage in the New York Times is being actively introduced in court to pass some of those anti-trans laws that are being passed in various states. We can also look at the fact that uh, every time one of these New York Times like anti-trans kid articles come out that are like, are kids transitioning too much? Um, I hear from gender reveal listeners and other trans people that they're like, my parents read this article, whether they're a kid or an adult. Mm. They'll be like, my parents read this article. My parents really trust the New York Times. And, you know, it's really hard because we don't have a publication with the caliber uh, credentials of the New York Times to to counteract this messaging. And so if you have someone's parents or like one million someone's parents who are like, well, I read in the New York Times that trans kids are bad and we shouldn't let them do it. And I go, okay, well, here's what I can offer you. I can offer you my podcast, Caitlin's podcast, a zine somebody made, an article published on a website you've never heard of, them.us. You know, even if we're right, it doesn't matter if we're right. They don't believe us over the New York Times, Um, which I hate. Like, it's it's really fucked up. 
Um, yeah. But it just doesn't matter like how correct or how researched or how professional we are. Like they're going to trust some bozo who has never met a trans person or covered trans politics a day in their life, um, just writing a 5,000 word essay out of their ass. And they're like, well, published in the New York Times, got to believe it. Would they lie? Have they ever lied before in the history of the New York Times? <laughs> so the Times never, never, <laughs> never gotten anything wrong. I think the closest equivalent, by the way, of that mm -hmm. is, and maybe I'm being a homer for one of my regular outlets, but I actually think NBC News does a yeah, they do. job. They do do a really good job. No, you're correct. But it doesn't carry the same prestige mm -hmm. as the Times, right? Because like people think of NBC as a television mm -hmm. station and not necessarily as like a written journalistic outlet. So it's really hard. And it, it's also just the the quantity, I think, because even though NBC is doing great work and there are other outlets that have done one-off articles that are great, it's just the sheer volume of New York Times transphobia. It's really hard to offset because you're not going to have like NBC or the Washington Post or whoever, like having people who are dedicated to putting out a pro-trans article every week. But we do have people at the New York Times dedicated to putting out an anti-trans article every week. So, you know, that's hard too. If the Times came to you tomorrow to be like, hey... Do you, would you write about trans issues for us no. full time? Would you would you take it? No, because their editors can do anything, anything. Um, so I have not ever contributed to the New York Times because they'd never have me. But I have been interviewed for the New York Times by a, an LGBTQ person. I'm trying to anonymize it. So I'll use the full acronym. Um, and this LGBTQ person, I was like, well, this person will get it being on the alphabet. Um, and instead, this person, thank God, fact-checked the article by just sending me the entire copy of the article, which is not how fact-checking works. Um, and when they did that, I saw that they had misgendered me every single time they referenced me, despite me being incredibly clear about how to gender me correctly. Uh, and they had also doctored a quote to make me sound aggressive. Mm. And I was like, hey, I didn't say this, and I know I didn't say this because this isn't true. And they said, oh. Well, we're going to do it anyway. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so when I'm saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and you're literally lying about me, uh, and they just run it in print, there's nothing that we can do about that. And, you know, I've seen them, you know, misgender other people in print and change other things as well. And it's just, unless you have 100% control about what's going out there, they're going to take what anything you did that's good and change it. Like, I know trans people who have written at the New York Times before, and they all left because they didn't have control over their own work. Um, so yeah, no, it's not just about like being a trans reporter. It's about having systems of power <laughs> in which you can get your work out there without it being like completely destroyed. Um, yeah. If they want to make me the the president of the New York times. Okay. I don't know what that job entails, <laughs> but I would take it for the good of all of us. That's a good place to leave it. I think like, that's a, yeah. And that's a good place to leave it with me, the president of the New York times. <laughs> Tuck, where can our listeners find your other stuff? Thanks so much for asking. Uh, my podcast, Gender Reveal, is wherever you listen to this podcast and at genderpodcast.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter too much currently. I almost got off and this drew me right back in. So I'm on Twitter at Tuck Woodstock and at tuckwoodstock.com. And then I also do have a consulting partnership called Sylveon Consulting, where I teach workshops to journalists about how to not be like the New York Times, which is a really great part of my job because I just get to do like three hours of PowerPoints where I show New York Times clips and I go, don't do this. <laughs> um, it rolls. It's so good. And that's at sylveon.co, um, S-Y-L-V-E-O-N.co. 
And then also you can contribute to my Fast and Furious anthology. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd be remiss without saying, if you go deep enough in the gender reveal archives, you will find an, an interview with yours truly. Um, it's true. A much more a much younger, much more naive yours truly. But uh, yeah, no, I, I still have fond memories of that interview. It's a good episode. Unfortunately, my name is wrong and my voice is up here. But I will allow people no. to experience oh. that if they want to hear you because, you know, it's not your we'll fault. We'll just have them tune to that, that yeah. part out. <laughs> Trans people are really good at sort of just blocking out those things. And so, yeah, that's fine. Caitlin, I'm tired and I need to cancel some shit. Yeah? Yeah, are you ready for some out-of-context cancellations? Let's get into it. Okay. We're going to cancel airports that make you walk through an IKEA-sized duty-free store between security and your gate. Yeah, what's up with that? They're trying to sell you shit. Trying to make money. I know, but like, do people go to airports, like, ready to spend money? Sometimes. I mean, I guess a lot of the stores are travel oriented, but the only place I ever buy stuff is like the bookstore convenience stores that they have there, like maybe some reading material for the flight or some snacks. There's like business clothes store, which I always find interesting. Like how many how much sales are they doing? Like are people traveling and they forget their suit at home? Like I don't. Yeah, they can charge emergency, emergency suit prices. <laughs> and like $5 for water. Oh my <laughs> Might be a slight over-exaggeration, but oh my lord, anything at the airport is so expensive. We're also going to cancel restaurants that list 85% of the ingredients of any given dish on their menu, but leave out the one you hate and cannot eat. It's annoying. Certainly annoying. <laughs> Um, we are going to cancel how fucking ridiculously complicated it, it is to scrub one of our listeners' child's dead names from healthcare systems, even though it's changed both legally and on insurance. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I've had this <laughs> with my dead name. It's like a, it's like a zombie. It keeps coming back to life, and like it's been two addresses since I changed my legal name and occasionally i still get like a freshly addressed piece of mail (laughs) to that other guy i like the the zombie metaphor (laughs) i'm really here for that i'm gonna think of dead names like zombie names (laughs) let's just call them zombie names now (laughs) i heard somebody this week say that we call it a dead name because it's what the media prints after we die and i'm like wow that's dark I can't feel my body right now because yeah, that's sorry, too I true. Just totally killed the vibes on this show. <laughs> Speaking of which, <laughs> oh my lord! Okay, yeah, uh, should we skip this one? Are the vibes too dark right now? Um, no, I think it's very thematic. Actually, okay, okay. we're going to cancel newspapers that edit online stories about murdered teenage girls to detonate them and remove any reference to the victim being a girl. That was that was too real. That was that was not planned. That that transitions. Oh, yeah. No, Oof. that was an organic. Uh, oh, hate that. Hate that, that we live oh. in this timeline. My bad. OK, uh, one more bad one. And then and then it's going to get lighter. I promise y'all um, we're going to cancel complaints about black people on the covers of books on display. Um, I, I don't. Why? We're, we are we are in 2023. We're in 2023, right? We are. (laughs) 
Okay, uh, we are we are moving on to um, lighter cancellations. Um, we're going to cancel two bedroom apartment listings that don't have living rooms. Somehow that's lighter. That's pretty dark. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty shitty. <laughs> I mean, fuck landlords. <laughs> fuck landlords. They should get a real job. <laughs> um, we're also going to cancel tiny paper cuts that seem to appear out of nowhere. Those are not fun. <laughs> we're also canceling the internet. It was a mistake. Yeah, I feel like that's in context. <laughs> like That's context that everybody can understand. <laughs> Um, and last but not least, ADHD and autism are being overdiagnosed discourse. Yeah, that <sighs> seems like it's annoying. It's really annoying. Those things used to only be diagnosed in very specific uh, populations. And mm-hmm. now that we're understanding how they present uh, in other people, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, not real. The children, <laughs> um, which sounds sounds a lot like the uh, anti-trans uh, children oh, yeah. discourse. Yeah. Well, there's so much we could get into with this stuff. Um, uh, so we're just going to move right along. If you want to submit something to out of context cancellations, you can join our Patreon. Do you want to do you want to tell people about our Patreon, Kate? Yeah, by joining Patreon, you can actually get access to our Discord server where everybody submits their out of context cancellations every week. Um, you can also sign up for different tier levels that give you great perks like getting episodes early. And there's also one or two dollar tier levels if you just want to throw a few bucks our way to say thank you for making this amazing podcast. Um, Caitlin is spreading misinformation. It's one or three dollars, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's one or three dollars. However, if everybody who listened just gave one dollar to the show, we could fund being a weekly show. So something to consider. Yeah, that would mean we could also hire a producer so Oliver doesn't have to keep pulling double duty. Oh, that would be amazing. (laughs) Extra incentive. Yes, please. (laughs) You can join and learn about other perks at patreon.com slash cancel me daddy. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ash, and Caitlin Burns. Oh, I'm not an amazing co-host anymore? No. Oh. <laughs> no, you're wonderful. Dee Peterschmidt made our theme song, and Eden M.W. designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work, especially the members of our Cancelor Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all of their enemies, Meg, Dahlia, and Catherine. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! Happy canceling!